Right, so let's go. We left off. I know that we have to get used to following the page numbers. Page 31A5. 31A5. We are on the right-hand column. It's not in English. It's not. In other words, to go to the English part. Oh, it's a 31A5. And, and there are two, let's go to the right column. The, the right column. Yeah, the rightmost part column. We, we're up to Chana. Okay. So, I'll read it with the English. The Gemara now proceeds to selectively analyze the verses that describe Chana's prayer and the resulting conversation with Eli the Koyin, a phrase from which was quoted above. You know, he's explaining to you how the flow in the Gemara works. So being that we quoted one phrase of something that Chana said, so we're going to now unpackage many other parts of that story and learn from it many halachic implications. Just for the record, there are many events that are recorded. Many opinions can be stated throughout Scripture from which we won't follow any of them in halacha. But... This conversation and this story actually brings about many rules in the prayers today. So let's start. Omar Rav Hamnuna says Rav Hamnuna, Kama Hilchase Gavrasa. How many important laws? Ikalamishma can be learned, Mahani Kroy Dechaner, from the following verses relating to Chana. And now we're quoting the verse. So we are quoting objectively what was happening. What was happening was is that Elkanah had two wives as was accepted then and one of his wives, Penina, had many children. Hannah at this point in her life had no children. The obligation of going to the Mishkan which was in Shiloh was, is an obligation on the men and it is voluntary on the women very much like prayer today that men are obligated to go to Shul Women are not obligated to go to shul. Now, just to reiterate that women are obligated biblically to daven. But you're not obligated to daven in the Beis HaKnesis. And that is all because when the temple stood, men are obligated to go three times a year. Women have the mitzvah to go. There is the option, but there's no obligation. Just a little bit of Jewish history. We are a temple-centered religion. Well, let me, let, me, let me continue. Temple-centered religion means that from when we began, we began by the leaving of Mitzrayim. True that for 50 days or 51 days then, we did not have a center as a temple. But that was a very short amount of time. When God gave us the Torah, whatever plan A would have been, it would have been around a temple. Even if that would have been our homes. But there has to be a physical center around which we practice Yiddishkeit. Because we had a failing of the golden calf, and there was a time, a period needed for us to find forgiveness in the eyes of Hashem, which was also not such a long amount of time, by Yom Kippur, that was the third time that Moshe Rabbeinu was up and came down after being 40 days and 40 nights on Mount Sinai, God forgave the Jewish people, and He right away shared with us the mitzvah of building a mishkan. Yom Kippur. Six months later, Rosh Chodesh Nisan, not even six months later, we inaugurated the Mishkan. Truth be told, the Mishkan was inaugurated during the, the last seven days of Adar, but that was called training. 
but we began to actually work in the Mishkan from Rosh Chodesh Nisan, and for approximately 1,000 years, Yiddishkeit was centered around Mishkan or Migdash. We were there for 40 years, then we went over to Jordan with Yehoshua in an area called the Gilgal. We built the Mishkan for 14, that's one four years. Then from the Gilgal we went to Shiloi. More or less where Shiloi is now, many people are familiar with Israel, you can go to Shiloi. The Mishkan stood in Shiloi for 369 years. Remember, 369, people remember, 333, 369. So the first was? 40, Mishkan was 40, then we were 14 years in the Gilgal. Then we were 369 years in Shiloi. Then we were for a total of 57 years between Nov and Givon, Nov and Givon, 57. And then Dovar HaMelech and Shlema HaMelech built the base Hamikdash, and the first temple stood for 410 years. Right, that's, I think it's a total of 890 years, if I'm not mistaken. Of us being a religion that was centered around a physical place that was called God's home, either the Mishkan or the Mikdash. And when the first temple was destroyed, even though we were only in Golos for 70 years, the assimilation that happened then was just as bad as the assimilation is happening now, which is the end of the world, the end of the world, but it took us 2,000 years to get here. Very few times throughout the past 2,000 years were the Jewish people marrying out as it is tragically happening now. But and it took 70 years. At the end of the 800 years, they were marrying out? At the end of the 890 years, in only 70 years, in only 70 years, 70 years means that imagine when the second temple was built, many Jews were there that saw the first temple. Okay. Because if, if you were 10 years old, you would be, I remember my 10 right. years old, if I could have seen the first temple, I would have been only 80 years old when the second temple was built. Right. Many, so many people were there that when they built the second temple, there was more crying than laughter. Because whoever witnessed the first temple mm-hmm. saw that the divine presence is nowhere near as it used to be. It's, it's not about the building. There was something that was not there. So the youngsters were celebrating and the elders were crying and the sounds of the crying overwhelmed the sounds of the celebration. Now, one of the messages that we learned, meaning we the Jewish people, under Ezra's leadership, is that we will not survive in Galus if we're not gonna be temple-centered. So already before we built the second temple, Ezra wrote a siddur, Ezra created the concept of davening with a minion and he created the structure for which if there's going to be a destruction, which there was 410 years later, then we right away, wherever we go, we built a center. And we can either call that center a Beis HaKnesses or a Beis HaMedrash. Beis HaKnesses is primarily designated for prayer. Beis HaMedrash is primarily designated for study. Most people today, like 99% of buildings, are designated for both plus. You build a communal center, you do other mitzvahs there and other gatherings there. And you just look at Jewish history. Jews survive when they live around a Beisachnesis. Now, Orthodox Jews, we are very careful not to call our shul a temple. Because it sounds like it's a replica of the temple. Jews that don't yet believe in the building of the third temple like to call their temple the temple because they know history, we need a temple, but this is the temple. Temple, whatever, whatever. Nothing wrong with it, just explaining why you're not going to find Frumayidin calling their shul a temple because we like to use the word temple for the third temple and we call our shul a community center, you know, in Chabad, we call it a Chabad house 
and, and even if you really want to designate it only for prayer, like in Yerushalayim, Betakneset, Betakneset is only for prayer. Or Beis HaMedrash, a house of learning. But normally today, you learn in the house of prayer, and you pray in the house of learning. Uh, very few... There's many laws. If there, if there is a location designated only for prayer, you can't do anything other than pray. You're very limited. You may not have any conversation there. You can't even munch on something. You can't drink anything. So it's not convenient. No, in some places, no. Only for praying. I'm sorry, only for praying. Because the name is legal? Because it's designated for. It's not about the name. Uh-huh. I just want to. So I want to come back over that we are a temple-centered people, and 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 it works. And it works. And Ezra felt that the reason why we assimilated that quick is because we didn't belong. We didn't have. We didn't have a shul. It means if there was no base amigdash, there was nothing. Now, truth be told, Israel was big. Millions of people lived there. People went to temple three times a year. That's enough. Look at today. It's mamish today, nothing changed. You have many Yidin that go to Shul, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. It's sad, but, but, it, but you know something? It says a lot. The Rebbe always, getting a little bit off, that when people used to negatively view, you know, the Jews that only go to Shul three times a year, there was a certain type of condescending tone. Ah, you know, they go to Shul. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, they go to Shul. The Rebbe loved it. The Rebbe wanted people to go to Shul more often. The Rebbe says that you mamash see a Yid. That even though the Yid the whole year is not connected, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, you got to go to Shul. It's, it's a sign that, that we have a soul because where else is it coming from if people are not observant and they don't really care? Why, why do they wake up on Yom Kippur? It's, a, it's not like Yom Kippur is the same day every year. Like it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I heard from, in the name of Rabbi Schwartz of Blessed Memory, that when he was in UCLA, Listen to this. He used to go to a psych ward in, in UCLA. And one of the big people there told him that the percentage of Jews in the psych ward on Yom Kippur, whenever it is, was substantially, measurably higher than it is any other day of the year. Isn't that crazy? In other words, something steers within the Jew. Either you run to shul or you go to the psych ward. Many shuls are psych words. I'm a chaya. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, something is steering. You got to do something. If it's not channeled one way, it's an amazing phenomenon. But Yidin used to go to the shul a few times a year. Coming back to the story of Hannah, women, if they, were, if they wanted, they went. They were not obligated to go. Hannah didn't frequent the temple, the Mishkan, Mishkan Shilei. Why? Why? Even though she understood, in spite of the fact that God Almighty is everywhere, God is everywhere. But God is more revealed in a place designated for prayer than in other places. And being that there's a greater giloy of godliness, therefore, not that we know godliness, we might not feel it at all. Even people that have a spiritual side, never to confuse spirituality and godliness. Mamish. There are many spiritual practices that are anti-godliness. It's not a stira. Some people say, I don't feel it. Say that most people don't feel godliness, but being that godliness is more revealed, so therefore there is a greater power to our prayers in a Besaknesis until today, halachically, even without a minion. I mean, if I have an option to daven in my home, or I'm going to go 2 a.m. after catch a flight, that I'm going to go to Shul, go daven in Shul, because it's a Makkim Kadosh, it's a holy place. So Hannah was relying on her husband praying for her. He goes there. She would tell me, I wasn't blessed with a child. Then one time when she told Elkanah, listen, you got to really put in a good word for me. Elkanah's her husband. Elkanah's her husband. So Hannah tells Elkanah, Elkanah tells Hannah, I don't understand. 
this anguish for a child, am I, am I not as good for you like 10 children? So what did she hear? Uh-huh. What did she hear? She heard... Well, I'm, we're not speaking about the greatness or not. She heard that, that, that Elkanah felt that she didn't have such a big need. He didn't feel her need. He felt... He, and therefore, based on the premise that a prayer that comes deeper within the person goes deeper within God. So she realized... That how can my husband? It wasn't about criticizing her husband. We're not, we're not speaking a good or bad head. She hopped that if he can tell her that what's your anguish if I am I not for you like ten children, and 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 he was a great husband in that context, but she heard he's not praying for her the way she would pray for her, so she felt she no longer can rely on his prayer. That means there's a lot to learn from. That means that if I am davening with your anguish, you go to a tzaddik. Then, then it doesn't matter whether it came out of my mouth or your mouth. If the prayer came from within someone's heart, deep within, it's going to have an effect. So up until this point, she felt that she can rely on Alkana. But now that she realized that Alkana is not davening with her from the same depth as she would have davened, so she went to the Mishkan. And now she has a double anguish. She has a double meaning, a multiplied anguish, because she's probably saying to herself, like, why wasn't I here until now? Like, I made a mistake. And this wasn't directed, maybe, yeah, maybe not. That wasn't the point. It wasn't a, t- a critique against her husband. She was, at that moment, very, very, very anguished. And, and when a person directs anguish into prayer, it makes the prayer that much more effective. And the same thing can be with joy. You don't have to, God forbid, have this anguished emotion. But it's about the more in touch with a deeper emotion you are while you daven, the greater of an effect your davening will have mamish in this world. Marat nefesh. Okay, so this is what happened. So she goes into the, so she goes in there, and because of her deep emotional state, so it says, Vechana, he midaberes aliba. She was speaking in her heart. Now you can speak from your mouth and you can speak from your heart and then you can speak in your heart, which means that the deeper of an emotional state someone gets into, you'll notice the harder it will become to articulate words. We all know that experience, both in joy or in pain. That you know, emotions is good, it helps you talk, but if you really get deeper into that emotion, there will come a point where the words don't come out clearly. And then they'll come at a point that all you can do is cry or laugh. You, you can only make a sound. And then there comes a point that you won't be able to make a sound. So there was something going, her way of her mannerism of talking was called al-liba. In her heart or, or, or from a very high level in her heart. Al is in it. Al is on. So high, on, high means, it's just to know this correlation. And this goes to many people that get involved in psychology. There's certain terms that we use that are, mean the same thing, but we use a different term. When you say deep, deep, and when you have in Kabbalah high, it means the same thing. Because in, we model many times, even though we spoke about last week the opposite, is about going mimamakim. But you know, this world, and then there's the higher world, and God is up there. If you have this imagery of something greater being higher, because something greater is higher, 
lower meaning on a lower level. So deeper is greater. So deeper and higher mean the same thing. Okay. From here we learn that you have to direct your heart. At least learn from her. Directing one's heart means to pay attention to what you are saying. There should be a connection between your feeling, at least your awareness and your words. Not, and not, especially we, who we daven out of a book. That means that we repeat the same words every day. Which means that we are habituated to daven those words. Which means that we have the option of going on cruise control. That means if someone is davening two times a day, once a day, three times a day, whatever it is, for a certain amount of time, you know the prayer so well that it's common that you can start the Shemana essay, and all of a sudden you're by the last page. And you don't even remember how did I get from here to there, and halachically that prayer is not, is not valid. The only reason why we don't repeat it is because who says you're going to have kavana the next time around? And being that you're taking God's name in vain because it's halachically not valid, so don't repeat it. So that's the number one. Then it says, Only your lips moved. No, no sound was coming out. Mikan, from here we learned, that they have to pronounce the words with the lips. That means there has to be an articulation. Now, truth be told, no sound was coming out. We're not learning that from her. We're learning part of that from her. But at least you have to articulate and not what you would think that since God knows what's in my heart and God knows, okay, so I have to express it to him in a holy place. So I'm going to the Beis HaMikdash. I'm going to the Mishkan. But why do I have to speak it out? We learned that from Chana. A moment of silence is not a Jewish thing. It's a lot better than nothing. No doubt about it. But Yidin we were educated, going back to Avram, and we have this now from Chana, that we don't pray in our hearts. I'll keep my, what's it, I'll keep my hearts. No, 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 it's not about that. We pray with our words, with our mouth. Elomad, the words have to be expressing your heart. And then it says, Her voice was not heard. Now, her voice was taken, not heard. We're not learning that nothing should come out. She was unable. She was trying to talk. You're moving your mouth and no voice is coming out. But the fact that the Torah writes that no sound was heard, we learn a halacha, mikan, that a person may not raise one's voice during the Shemayna Esrei prayer. It's considered disrespectful. Now you should know like this, that davening out loud helps a person have more feeling. And stay focused, which is why before the Shemayna Esrei, it's we're supposed to daven loud. In school, for sure, they daven loud before the Shemayna Esrei. So there is something about davening bekoil. It's called kol meorer hakavana. It helps people stay more focused. It helps people get in touch with their feelings. You know, fake it until you make it. Occupational therapy, laugh, 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 laugh. Some joy will go into your heart. Daven loud. Some something, some emotion will come about. All of this needs to be done before Shemana Esrei. During the Shemana Esrei, we have to daven loud, and there are a few reasons for that. First of all, when we daven amongst others, I, had, I don't have the right to disturb you. Number one. And even when I'm davening by myself, using the words of Rashi, that davening out loud gives the impression 
that I'm coming from the premise that God can only hear if I speak loud. That's correct. So that's Ashkenazim, Sephardim. Don't even, don't even, don't even hold that. That's necessary, but a voice has to come out of your mouth. Oh, so we do have to have a voice. That's what we learn from her. Yeah. We have to move the lips from Chana. That means by that means by us, and you have to make a sound, but make sure that it's low. You have to hear it yourself. We pass Ashkenazim Paskin that you have to hear it yourself. That's particularly challenging when you go to an airplane. There's certain environments that it's almost like a catch-22. For me to hear my own voice, I gotta dive them loud. And 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 then you're not supposed to dive them loud. So you dive in as loud as you need to to hear your voice and no louder. On an airplane, if you wear Bose, cans, noiseling earphones. Just saying, then you'll be able to dive in and hear your voice, not plugged into music, just have it in your ears. You will be able to hear your voice even when you dive in relatively on a lower tone, which is what ideally we should do by Shmanas. And now, and Eli thought that she was a drunkard. And so what? Sure. Like, like let's say you're like in a waiting room with your kids or something, and you want to, and like I personally don't feel comfortable like, I would say like this, that if you have the option of davening it at a later time at home and you're not comfortable in that setting, then it's better for you to daven at home for you to have better kavana because you're not uncomfortable. What if like you're not going home after? If you're not going home and this is either you will daven or not, then I would argue daven. To say it. Yeah. To not do it silently? Yeah. Really? Okay. Really. Yes. What about like when you're lighting Shabbos candles? Yes. You're really like pouring your heart out, but you have like guests that are also lighting Shabbos candles. Then that that daven the way you daven Shmuel Esrei. No, you should hear yourself, and they should not hear you. They should not hear you. You know, you know how you can sometimes like talk, but you're not. If someone was next to you, they won't really understand what you're saying. Like, does it? They hear the mumbling. Yeah, it's like mumbling kind of. Like, Mamish, we're learning this now. Oh, oh, so if Hashem understands, so then why do we have to say anything? Oh, oh, that's why we're learning from Chana. This, that's the meaning of Chituch means to cut. Cut means to clearly articulate. We should not mumble. We should learn. That's in other words, you're right. It's private, so you daven from your heart. Say the words. No one else should hear it. You should hear it. And I, and I would say that it's it's almost it's almost intrusive for someone else to be listening if if you're davening like that slow in a low voice. There were certain people that never benchlich when other people were present. I, I heard that about that, I, I, and I'm sure it's because of what you're saying. I don't know if, I'm not sure. I'm being recorded if it was that Eva's wife or was that Eva's mother. There were certain holy women that no one was present when they benchlich. Because I'm sure that they, 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 it took them a long time and they had a lot of meaningful prayers and they didn't necessarily want other people to hear what they're praying about. It's private. This is private. I mean, if this is your moment with God, if you have a meeting and... Uh, huh? My mom used to make us like move away. Move away. No, if you're having a generic prayer, which is also of great value, then no one knows what you're thinking about. You're saying like Shmona Esrei, even if someone listens to your Shmona Esrei, you're saying the same words that they're saying. But if you attack and making up your own prayer, then maybe, maybe, yeah, uh, there's a balance. So every time you talk to Hashem, ideally it should be a little bit out loud. It should be loud enough for you, you to hear. Because the words, 
Well, I'll pick a ball. I'll pick a ball. It's not because for you when when there's a talk, when there's a conversation with God, it's really a two-way conversation. Two-way conversation means that God doesn't only listen, but God responds. God doesn't respond the way we speak to Him. Maybe for great prophets that they hear God's voice, but God responds by by granting or not granting something or giving to the to the prayer something that was not there before, and the challenge is is that coming from God to the physical world it's such a mismatch such a non-shidduch God is not physical and we're physical so say God wants to give you a bar of gold how does that happen it's a mystery so something has to travel and it has to travel from a different reality to a lower reality to a lower it has to go through many many uh, worlds and when it comes into this world your words are the vehicles through which the bracha comes into your life so if you mumble the words, so then some of the blessings, you know, escape through the holes in the pipes that were not properly rounded out or something like that. Okay, I have a couple more questions. Okay. Um, so I just keep on thinking about like the wrestle thing of like, you know, talking out loud to Hashem. And a lot of people watch are very like not into this if you don't talk to Hashem out loud. I don't understand why because according to this, it sounds exactly right. Um, second question is... Hold on, stop, stop, stop. I want to answer one at a time because these are big questions. First of all, there's nothing wrong with that. Make it very clear. Um, there is, at the end of chapter 37 in Tanya, the Al-Tareb is lamenting. The Al-Tareb is like saying, oh, what a pity. Mm-hmm. Like, what a pity that people call out to God by saying, Father, Father. Right, right. They, What's wrong with that? Isn't it nice? Abba, Abba. Same concept, because God is infinitely greater than us. So when you're calling out to God, now the Al-Tareb says, we have a title. And if we were to learn Torah, any Torah, with the Kavana, I'm crying out, Father, Father, instead of calling Father, Father. What happens if your father doesn't know the meaning of the word Father? He knows the meaning of the word Papa. But you're calling out to him in Farsi, Father. Well, he'll hear your heart, but why don't you speak to your father in his language? Our language to God are the words of the Torah and the words that the Anshe Knesset Sagdoyle wrote in the city. I know it's a lot easier for me to be more authentic and more emotional when I speak my words. And there is a place for that in the prayer. We learned about that many times. But but it should be within God's words. So there's nothing wrong with it. We don't advocate it because if you really want to get closer to God, then make a greater effort pre-davening to feel, to, to feel and to desire to connect and express that desire and call out instead of saying the words Abba, Abba, Say the words, This is the way a Jew calls out. When we learn Torah, you know what God hears? He hears his little children calling out to him, Abba, Abba, come to me. That's the biggest shmak But when you're talking to Hashem anyway throughout the day, yes. right? then at that point my question is, do we then need to say it out loud? Yes, always, always. Because, because, it goes back to that. Because, yeah. that talking to Hashem and like a... But we're talking to Hashem in words. Yes. So we're supposed to say, Yes. Supposed to talk to Hashem in words. So is, that, is that Abba Abba? Or? Talking to Hashem in words is Shwana Esri. Right. But let's say there's a cop behind me. There's my, every time I example, I'm in traffic. <laughs> <laughs> every time I'm Abba, Abba, please let yeah. the cop not so, see uh, the grace of violation that I did. Hashem, please. Oh my 
God from it. You know, it's like the, the rev- it's, I don't know. It's all day long. I'm in the car, and all day long, it's Hashem, Hashem, help me. There's a copy behind. Okay. This, or whatever it is. It's it's wording like, it, word it, word it, word it. Don't think it in your heart. So, so we're so, we're not to say. We should say. We should say. Okay, so if I'm thinking like, can I get, can saying, I get, what's the difference between that and the rest of? I'll tell you the, the better would be to say on the Hashem Hashiyah. In other words, we know we know Torah. It's a pasuk and Torah. There's so many psukim. In other words, there's a certain Hamishkeit. There's a certain authenticity to use the words Abba Ta'azorli. Then it's much better than nothing. Who doesn't know on the Hashem Hashiyah? You know, you know how much Ruach Hakodesh went into this little phrase. It's, it's, it's just, it, you're speaking God's words. God likes to hear these words. Okay. So, now, God likes to hear from you, period. It's better to hear from you than not to hear to you. But when, he, when you're talking to him in his words, it has a greater it's effect. It's, it, it's, a, it's like a chaval, uh-huh. like a pity. Right. You, you, you're already there. You already did the effort. You know, why don't you get all of the benefit almost, almost selfishly for you? So it seems like, I know it sounds silly, but it seems almost like besides for the prayers that we say that are set and sitter seems like there needs to be a list of everyday psukim that we say as we're, like to learn Hashem's language because I, I, I don't know that like I don't know that's basically all that's all your prayers that's please God help me please God grant me success praise God that's from Tehillim that's from Tehillim you're saying that wholeheartedly should you say Hashem's name sure Really say the whole verse. On the Hashem or Shia, no, on the Hashem at Slicha, no, one verse. Sure, say God's name. Sure. From Capital Kuf, Kuf Yud Ches. 118. 118. 118. Tell him. 118. Yeah. So it's almost 118. Yeah. And I say it every Shabbos. Thank you. But is that with, with the Sukim of the Rebbe? I just looked these up, so I, I was not raised the Babish. But what are those like times you could say those Sukim? Or how do you say those? Are you referring to the verses you say at the end of the Shemona Esrei? No, like the Sukim, like the Rebbe has these. Uh, 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 uh. The Rebbe instead. You can say them. If, if they relate, like, if a cop is behind you and you say, uh, it doesn't relate to the cop behind you. <laughs> but, 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 but if it comes behind you and you say, God, oh no, Hashem, oh she, oh no, no, Hashem, I'm sleeping, no, now you're talking, you know. Wait, what time do you say those? Well, you have to. Rally. Let's start like this. <laughs> you have to know the meaning of these verses <laughs> to, to answer your question. Okay. What was your second question? We're good? Okay. I have one question. You keep saying LMI. Yes. I'm sorry, LMI. What, yeah. is that, what does that mean? It's a Talmudic phrase. I know that. But Since it's it not this, it must be that. Ah, okay. It must be that. Okay, got it. LMI? LMI. I know it's a Talmudic phrase. It's a Talmudic phrase when you're, de- when you're deducting know. something. When you're, you're ruling something, something out. out. Since it can't be this. Then it must be that. Okay. Then it must be that. And sometimes you can say, no, it might not be this and it might not be that. Okay. Fine. That's a question on your LMI. But LMI is right. when you're coming to a conclusion because you ruled other things out. You know, my second question. You said that when emotion is so deep, there are no words. Correct. So, at that point, it's important to bring it down to words so that it comes down to this world? Is that what I would say that it's important to live in that moment for a moment. Mm-hmm. And as you come back down into reality, if you have the koyach, the mental fortitude of then giving words to it, okay. then you're channeling those so it's kind of a good idea to go through a table with, like, with a highlighter and just yeah. highlight all the one-liners that yeah. speak to you. Yeah. That speak to you. But at least, but at least you're, you're educating yourself to speak God's words. Yeah. 
wrote it with Ruach HaKodesh. So let's go back. So now like this. So since it says that Eli thought that she was a Shikaira, that she was a drunkard, so from here we learn that a drunk person is not a lot of prey. Not a lot of prey. Now, why can't a drunk person pray? And let me go further. We're going to have in a moment that praying drunk is tantamount to idol worship. Let's keep on reading a little bit. The Gemara continues with interpretations of the passage regarding Chana and other Amoraim, some of which, again, are of Allahic in nature, while other are Agadic. The Gemara is like the original Google. The Gemara... What is it? It's putting together all different types of Torahs. It's not a halachic book. Agadic, agada means homiletical. Homiletical is like medrash type. Homiletical is a certain way of interpreting verses that it's very emotional and it chaps you in. It's a little bit esoteric. So some of so we have been learning now a couple of laws, but now we're going to go on from learning a couple of laws to other agadic statements, all from this event. Eli told her, How long will you be drunk? He was criticized. He criticized her. Now, why did he need to criticize her? Why was it his business to criticize her? So, says that the Amoira from here you learn, that if you see in your friend turning to Daf Lamid Aleph Amid Base, right, you're turning a page, we're going to 31b1. If you see something improper in your friend, you are obligated to reprove him or her. Providing you're their friend. That's the key. If you're not their friend, that means you're not coming from friendship, then you should never reprimand them because you will never succeed. And the purpose of of reproving is mind your own business means I don't care about you. When a parent sees their child doing something that is not for their benefit, oi vai vai, if the parent says, I'm minding my own business. No, if you, if you loved your kid, then why would you mind your own business? Now, certain people have a, a certain unhealthy amount of intrusiveness, we're not, we're not advocating that. But if you have a chaver, now Eli was a tzaddik, that means when he saw another yid, he wanted their good. So since he was, he really felt for every yid something positive, and he saw a woman that he thought was davening as under the influence that she was intoxicated, so it was his obligation to read it. He told her, he could have just ignored her. No, he's obligated. It's on him. And Hannah responds, "Vatan Hannah vatoimer," and she says the words, "Loi adoini." No, my master. Now here we have a, a debate, a machloikis. In the Talmud, what did she mean? In what tone did she say it? So Amar Ullah, she told him the word Adain, she told him, that you are not a master in this matter. You think you're like you're the big master. You're not a master. Nor is divine spirit resting upon you. You know how I know that you're not the master and you don't have Ruach HaKodesh? Because, because you are suspecting me of something that is not true. No, she didn't just tell him it's not true. She told him, <coughs> It sounds like she's 
she was she was reprimanding him. She was rebuking him. She wasn't defending herself. Defending herself would have mean I'm not drunk. That's a person who's on the defensive. She went on the offensive. She attacked him. She attacked him. Not because the best defense is an offense. Because just like he cared enough, he cared for her. He didn't know her. She cared enough back to him. Remember, she felt he, he, he's out for my good. I'm a, I have to be out for his good. And she told you know what? You're lacking in Ruach HaKadosh. That's one interpretation. There's another interpretation. this is not chutzpah? First of all, who said it's not chutzpah? No. It could be. But, 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 but again, the way I'm understanding the Gemara. Right? How do we begin? These are very important the words. That I think amongst friends, there is a certain healthy amount of... Why were they friends though? Friends doesn't mean they were friends the way Americans says were friends. They respected each other. That that she was a very special woman and, and she had a, a very healthy amount of respect for every person and so was Ailey. Hmm. So she was a special woman before for sure. she, this whole story. For happened. sure, for okay. sure. So here you have now exactly in most cases when the coin god goes over to you, you'll say you. you would say, I'm not drunk. Sorry, got the wrong person. Right. Even even no, she went much more than that. That's one version. Ikda Amri, another version. Hachi Amri La. This is what she told him. She asked him a question. Loi Adenato, are you not a master? Don't you have Ruach Hakodesh? She wasn't telling him you don't. She was telling him that you should have. She was asking. She was asking him, also in a reprimand, but she was asking him, it's like when you tell our child, you can do better. No, you're asking, could you do better? No. no. She's telling him, are you not a master? Isn't the and the within you? It is. So therefore, I don't understand. Shadanti lekav chayva that you judge me unfavorably. A, a, a manifestation of the shechina within a person is that they judge others favorably. And she felt that she was not judged favorably. But that didn't make sense. So she was telling him, "How can that be? Aren't you a master? You are a master. Isn't the shechina within you? The shechina is within you. So how can it be? Explain this to me. How can it be that you judge me unfavorably?" And you did not judge me favorably. So she was judging him favorably and wondering why it was Mom, very, very good statement. She was judging him favorably and she was astounded. She said, how can it be that you, Takayur, the Tzaddik, that you have Ruach HaKadosh, how can it be that you're judging me unfavorably? Me, that don't you know because you have divine inspiration. Don't you know the Ishak Shas Ruach HaNoichi? That I'm a woman of aggravated spirit. That I'm a woman who's davening this way because I can't even I can't even speak out the words. Okay. And she goes further and she tells him, I have drunk neither wine nor any other strong drink or beer. Omar Abalaza says that from here you learn that that if someone suspects you about concerning something that you know is not true. Don't say, okay, so what? So you think about me X, Y, and Z. You're a problem. No. That should sort of clear. You have to tell them that you're wrong. In other words, we're learning this from the second statement. In the first statement, she reprimanded him. 
You don't have divine inspiration. She gave him Musa. Second statement, she wasn't reprimanding him. So if she wasn't reprimanding him, then what's her point? Then what's her point? She was correcting him. Her point was, she was obligated to tell him that you're wrong. I don't understand how it's possible for someone like you to be wrong, but you're wrong. I'm not drunk. In other words, it's very healthy to learn how to live life not to be on the defensive. That's step number one. Many people... But this is on the defensive. No, 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 no. No, that's wrong. I think many people, they we're all wired the way we're wired. That's the way our parents interacted with us. It takes us 100 years to figure it out, and then it's too late. Then we pass away. That's the irony. When you finally get it. But I'm saying what happens, certain people, unbeknownst to them, they interact with others somehow. They right away put the other on the defensive. Some people are very sensitive to that, and when that happens, they disconnect. Am, am I obligated to go on the defensive? Shalom. I don't need this. It's like toxic. So now we're learning like this, that even though you taka, you're, you're not mechuyiv to be under the defensive. Not under the defensive. She wasn't under the defensive. But there's a rule that if someone, you have to say, if someone is suspecting you of having done something, you should tell them that's not what happened. Not to get into this whole defensive mode and then there's this unhealthy, unequal dynamic. You're, you're being attacked and you have to defend. You don't have to for them. But she did tell them I didn't drink. That's what, that's what Gemara said. So she was... It, she, I don't she call that defensive. She notified them. She, first of all, she told him that I don't understand. And she meant this. This wasn't a manipulative shtech. Uh, how can it be that someone that has Ruach HaKodesh, which you have, how did you not know? I don't, I don't understand. And you should know that I'm not. When I say the word defensive... But when somebody blames you of something and you don't want to be defensive, right? If that someone is, is a greater person, then you should tell them, even though you don't want to be defensive, you should just tell them, it's not what you're saying. Finish. Okay. You're obligated to, you should notify. Just it to depends s- on the relationship, probably, right? Like, some people, it's oh, just like, whatever, question. it's not worth getting into, but if it's someone that you actually have a relationship with and they're misunderstanding, then I think, right? She had if no... If you're a friend, you'd want them to know, you'd want it to be told, like, oh, like, that's not what's going on. She had no relationship with Ellie. That's my, that's my question, like, but it said that's it the whole point. In friend. other words, it, wa- it wasn't to create a, she wasn't resetting a relationship or, re- no, she, when someone accuses you of something, not that you should be defensive. Tell them, it's not nishtamis. So there are two things that happened. First of all, she asked him a question. How can it be that since you are a master, you're, you're, the, you're the Kohen Gadol. And he did have Ruach HaKadosh. And we'll share a, a very important Hasidic insight of what really happened over here. So first of all, she thought, I, like, how can it be? She wasn't expecting an answer, but she was like shocked. How can it be that someone with Ruach HaKadosh would not know the hidden? The hidden was is that she was, she was uh, davening from the depths of her heart and she couldn't even speak clearly, which is why it looked like she was a drunkard, but she wasn't. And then she needed to tell him, I'm not drunk. I didn't drink. No. When we daven to Hashem, there are two ways of relating to God. This is how the Rebbe and Hasidus explains the, the back and forth between Eli and Chana. There is a time and a place for us to relate to God in a, ra- in a rational, reasonable manner. I'll give you an example. If we go into shul, we dress up. Even when you daven in your home, we learn this together in halachas. Like a guy, it's better to put on a jacket, 
to dress in a more respectful way. Because if you're going to go to a minister, to a king, wouldn't you get dressed up, so to say? So dress up when you speak to God. Right? Hey, we're not supposed to adapt before we brush our teeth. These halachas. And you can ask why. I get it. Another human being, as great as they are, they're just a human being. But God, God, God is not bothered by my bad breath. And if he is, I feel bad for him because he stuck with me before I brush my teeth. Why do we have to do certain, uh, get ready for prayer? Ke'ilu was standing in front of a human being when God is not a human king. And the answer is, is that even though God is not like a human king, but we don't know how to relate to God on God's terms. I know how to relate to God only through my experience. And my experience, whenever I have an important meeting, I'm gonna, there's going to be a minimum amount of grooming that I'll go. If not, it's not, I'm not being respectful to you. If I didn't brush my teeth and I speak to you, it's disrespectful to you. The truth is it's not disrespectful to God. But from my perspective, it is disrespectful to God. So there is a time and a place where we have to relate to God, let's say, in a reasonable way. There is another truth. And that other truth is, is like a person who is drunk is completely irrational. A certain part of the brain shuts off. That we also, there is a time and a place to relate to God on that level. And when we do so, there are no rules. If I'm relating to God beyond the norm, and there is a time and place for that, then there are no rules to pray. There are no rules to pray. You can speak with a bad breath and you can speak uh, without being dressed properly and you can repeat the same thing 20 times. One of the things that the Medrash says is that she kept on repeating her prayer. And, and, and when you speak to a king, you, you ask once. You know, if someone asks you something once, they ask you twice, there comes a point that they irritate you. You already asked. Now, we, we daven three times a day, but in one prayer, how many times can you ask? And she was repeating it again and again and again and again and again. A drunk does that. You're babbling away, saying the same thing. Not that Ellie thought that she actually was intoxicated, but she was davening like an intoxicated person. She was davening without a certain system. There wasn't a rationale. The words were not coming out clearly. She wasn't standing in a masudic way. She was probably shuckling all over the place. So he reprimanded her for davening on such a level. And what we learn from that story is that she introduced to Yiddishkeit that such a prayer is also kosher. And Ellie did not know that. Even though Ellie has Ruach HaKadosh. Not the pshat that he thought that she's a drunkard and then she said she wasn't. That can't be, according to Hasidus. Ellie was reprimanding her for davening like a drunkard. He didn't know that such a prayer is acceptable. And what Hannah told Ellie is, is that when a Jew feels so deep in their emotions, that their mind stops working and they have to tell God the same thing 80 times, unclearly, it is of value. It's not disrespectful. There aren't the rules of tefillah when a person is davening on this level. And that's a big thing that she introduced. That's why we should talk about a lot of, a lot of laws of tefillah I learned from Khan. Does it come down in a, in a more um, chaotic way, the answer Hashem? Probably does. Probably does. But it's okay because... But it's okay. It's not disrespectful. Uh-huh. No, that was a word that Why since Ishak Shas Ruach Anoichi, she told him that when a person is feeling this Kshas Ruach, there are no more Hilchas Tefillah. What's her purpose getting... I mean, her purpose was she wanted what she wanted. What is it? I don't think at a certain point she didn't have a purpose. She was just expressing her feelings. And, 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 and God wants such a prayer. 
And if a person is stuck on that level, let me give you a nice, just to bring, illustrate that. There was once by our Rebbe, or by a previous Rebbe, by a Chabad Rebbe, there was a Fabrengen, and there was a small group, relatively a small group. And there was a Jew that got so inspired, he got so inspired that he jumped up on the table and he began to dance. And he was dancing for a long time. And all of a sudden, the Rebbe told him, go off the table. And later Hasidim asked him, what, what happened at that moment? And he knew. He says that I felt so inspired that when I jumped on the table, I wasn't self-aware. I was mamash, I, I was so, I was just feeling this joy. And I was just, it was just dancing out of me. All of a sudden, I began to look at myself. And I got nachas. He says, wow, look at this. This is kind of cool, right? The moment I was self-aware, they never told me to get off the table. That's Ruach HaKadosh. In other words, when we are self-aware, then you have to behave. You don't dance on a table in front of a tzaddik. But you know what? But if you are on a very deep emotional level, there's nothing more beautiful. It's not disrespectful. It depends where you are at. So when we are on a lower level, we have to abide by many rules. When we reach a higher level, that's what Chana brought to prayer. And no one ever davened that way before. No one davened to God the way Chana davened over here. And I want you to know, the answer wasn't that chaotic. She got her son Shmuel was greater than my, equal, like equal to Moshe and Aaron together. Like, like whatever that means. In other words, she got exactly what she davened for. But you have to understand that it wasn't only irrational. A lot of what she told God was very rational. And we're going to continue next week. It was chutzpah, chutzpah on steroids, what she told God. Like shocking what she told God. And God listened to her prayer. There's a lot to learn from over here. What she told God, none of us would dare tell God. It's a lot. You don't know yet. You don't even know what's coming yet. <laughs> and let me just read one more line over here. And, and she tells Eli, Take not your maidservant to be a base woman. Now, base is an expression that's used specifically with idol worship. Amar Abulazar, Mikan, from here we learn that of someone who is a shikir, that if they do daven, it's a tantamount to them worshipping idols. Because she told Eli, and the, the literal pshat is, Eli said, you're a drunk, you're a shikaira. And she's telling Eli, I'm not drunk. Don't take me for bas belial. The word base is connected to idol worship. Because here it says belial. It says in another verse concerning idol worshippers, just like that verse, the word Bilial is specifically referring to idol worship. Here also, it's referring to idol worship. And I want to stop with this, and maybe even to take off next week and this point. And the question is, why? Why is davening drunk like idol worship? It might not be respectful, okay, but why is it idol worship? What's the definition of drunk? That's a good halachic question. Let me, let me give you the vague answer because the Talmud doesn't give you a specific line. Drunk in the context of a person losing their ability of freedom of choice. That's what happens. The more drunk a person gets, the less power of freedom to choose will that person experience. When people before they're drunk, you decided I'm going to do something or I'm not going to do something. What happens when you get drunk? I know a guy that, that, that he lived in Miami, he used to come Tishrei to the Rebbe. And everyone, he was very wealthy, everyone used to harass him for a good donation. So he would get very drunk. 
Mm-hmm. Like this, no one can come later and, and say that I promised them this because when you're drunk and you make a commitment, it doesn't have a lachic meaning. I was drunk. Because when you're drunk, you will undertake to do things that in your state of soberness you would have chosen not to do. And the uniqueness of a man and a woman is their freedom of choice. And anything that we do that harms our ability to choose is something that we are never allowed to bring upon ourselves. That does not include sleep because a person can immediately wake up from sleep. Unlike drunkenness, people need time to get up from drunkenness. Or I'll tell you what about people that take anesthesia. Just to know that certain great Yidin never went under anesthesia. Many big tzaddikim. And there's stories about it because, because of this concept. Because I am not allowed to opt to do anything that will alter my cognitive power of freedom of choice. And it's ironic. People think that freedom of choice is a way disorder. What's freedom? Freedom of choice means that I have the power to choose against God. Right? Believing everything is hashgacha, that's belief in God. It's the opposite. Everything has hashgacha aside my freedom of choice. If I say, no, whatever I choose is hashgacha pratis, which is what many people say. They do the more horrible thing, oh, that was God's will. Because everything was God's will. That's the biggest affront to God. To blame my mistake on hashgacha pratis. I made a horrible, it must have been hashgacha pratis because if God wouldn't have wanted, no, you chose that. Abnegating our freedom and throwing it on God's shoulders is not an expression of belief in God. It's, a, it's an assault on our belief in God. And we, we can continue about this. So why Purim do we drink? So like this. Okay, one second, one second. I know, but Purim, you're, you're supposed to drink. Purim is an exception to this, you should halachically. Yeah. Purim is an exception because the whole, the whole point that we should not know Baruch Marthev Arun Haman, that's an exception to the rule. And there's a question mark on that, but that's a fact. I'm not saying that people should get drunk, but there is a place in Torah to drink to the excess. And you have, perhaps, I mean, you have amongst Hasidim three times a year that Hasidim were not, were not against altering our state of consciousness, and, and that is Simchas Torah, Purim, and Yutas Kislev. And we can speak about that. But that's, that's a, all of this is a question mark. And other than these three times, and even during those three times, just to be aware of that. And this is when people, a couple of years ago, when, when they legalized marijuana and stuff like that, just know the Jewish approach against any drug that alters our state of consciousness has to do with, does that alteration affect my freedom of choice? And we have to look at the, what the world is saying. So if I'm not allowed to drive under the influence, why can't I drive? Why? Because my reflexes, because my choices won't be as good as they could be. What's the fear? The fear is, is that I'm going to make a mistake. No one wants to hurt anyone else. But in that state, I'll wrongfully judge what's going on. And that goes to any other intoxicating agent. And that's connected to idol worship. There's a lot of like, more accidents related to sleep deprivation than so then I can argue theoretically again theoretically you have to know how to put this in law I remember when, when they discovered when they discovered how bad smoking is someone asked Rav Moshe to write a halachic ruling that, that, you, uh, that a Jew is not allowed to smoke and, and he was hesitant to give it that ruling first of all in those years going back in the 50s and the 60s we didn't know how bad it is but he said that one cigarette won't kill you how can you tell a Jew not to smoke this cigarette but over the years it changed and generally the halachic world says that we're not allowed to smoke no doubt when people will become aware of how, how much the lack of sleep affects my ability to choose, then there's going to be a greater advocacy. 
halachic advocacy of making sure that you're not sleep deprived because it affects it affects your ability to make right choices when people are very very over exhausted whatever yeah, yeah in other words that's the nakoda that's the that's the rule when people are what's the problem with drunk I'm not talking about that vomiting is a nice thing I'm talking about the, the, the halachic issue with drunkenness is that my my humanness more than anything else is my koyach to choose between good and bad and anything that minimizes that power is a state that I'm never allowed to actively put myself in now having a cup of wine just to finish the halachic issue I don't think I'm legally allowed to drive out of a half kiddush but, but I have to have kiddush Friday night and you're supposed to have it on wine and on, and on Pesach I have to have four cups of wine packet spread out but in other words, there is because what, where is the line? So I can say like this, let's go like this. Wherever Halacha tells me to do something, I'm not breaking the line. So when it comes to Kiddush and to Avdol, and it comes to the four cups, obviously there are exceptions. People that are prone to being alcoholics should only have grape juice. I'm not talking, I'm talking about the rule, 100%. The fact that Halacha allows a, a, an excess of intoxication on Purim, that's Halacha. But to be aware that there's other Halachas, you have to know how to put it all together. Other than that, you can't you can't tell a person who feels after they work a hard day they want to have a, a thing of beer. I don't think there's anything wrong with it for people that are not prone to be alcoholics. There is a certain amount of tolerance because yeah, my 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 power of choice changes with everything. When I'm happier, when I'm sadder, when I'm feeling, everything has a effect on. But the drunkenness or getting high touches the area of bechira, bechira chavshes, and that's the pro- that's a problem. Where how do we apply that? I don't know how to answer that question with a, with a measure.